We start today with international air flights continuing to land in Canada, continuing to arrive with COVID-positive passengers. Last week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, under pressure from the opposition, announced Canada would suspend incoming flights from India and Pakistan. Here's Trudeau. Yesterday, we announced new and even stronger travel measures. Since last night, all passenger flights coming into Canada from India and Pakistan are suspended. Okay, that's Trudeau speaking last week. Does that go far enough? Is it time to suspend flights from other COVID hotspots? Is it time to possibly temporarily suspend all international flights arriving in Canada. Let's discuss now with my guest, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Federal Conservative Party. He's the leader of the official opposition in the House of Commons. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on this morning. It's great to be back with you, Mike. Okay, you were out of the gate early here calling on Trudeau to stop those flights from India. He did precisely that and Pakistan as well, but you don't think it's going far enough, correct? Right. He he didn't stop from all hotspot countries. You know, I also named Brazil and any countries where the variants are, are out of control in those countries because of low vaccination rates. We have to make sure that those infections don't come here and we have to have a system so that people can't find loopholes, back doors in. And he hasn't provided any detail on any of this, Mike. So we, we, we need a more a severe sort of response to make sure that we keep these variants out. Okay, so you would stop flights from Brazil, other other countries too? Like which ones? Well, any country that has a a huge outbreak of variants without uh, uh, these sufficient levels of vaccination. Sadly, we don't have enough vaccination in Canada, so we're at risk of these variants running through our population quite quickly. So we, we've already mentioned a few countries, but until we can actually solve the problem at the land border, Mike, I think we should probably look to a temporary ban until we can make sure that we have the ability to provide rapid testing and screening at all of our ports of entry. That isn't happening now. That's something Trudeau promised a year ago, and he still hasn't delivered. Because these new variants, particularly the double mutation from India, is overwhelming the healthcare system there. And we've already got a few cases in. We can't afford any others into our country. Okay, Brazil is a terrible situation right now. There's other countries in South America that have got outbreaks as well, so they might be on the list of COVID hotspots. But I heard you this morning calling for possibly uh, grounding all international flights. Is that right? Well, that's got to be something we look at until we can assure that our land and air borders are are screened properly. Right now, you've seen the case of people flying to Buffalo and taking taxis into Canada to circumvent the rapid testing and other screening at the airports uh, and going the land land portion. Why do we not have a rapid screening test? at every port of entry, including land borders. So we need to make sure we secure the border properly. Trudeau promised this a year ago, Mike. He still hasn't delivered his promises from the first wave, and we're in the third, and the variants make it the worst wave. Okay, speaking to Federal Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole, talking about the vaccine rollout in Canada, you've been very critical uh, of the government's efforts here. I, I noticed that you got the vaccine yourself on the weekend, though, right? Yeah, my wife and I got the AstraZeneca. We're, uh, you know, we're over 40, and and in Ontario that's permitted. We went through our our doctor, and they had a clinic for for patients, about 400 through the the health centre we went through. So these are safe, these are effective, and we need vaccines in arms to start turning the corner on COVID. Right. Did you get the uh, Did you get the AstraZeneca hangover? (laughs) 
No, I felt uh, great. And, uh, you know, my wife was a bit uh, uh, sluggish yesterday for sure. Um, as you may remember, Mike, we had COVID in, in September. And so um, so we've we've been through this journey like so many other Canadian families are. And that's why we wanted to show how critical the, the vaccines are. And, and Rebecca's back at it today. And uh, I'm feeling great. Okay. Uh, you've been very critical of the vaccine rollout in the country, yet here you are in uh, late April and you've managed that you and your wife have managed to get the COVID shot. Like if you had gone back in time a few months from now, would you have thought that you had been vaccinated by this time or do you think you would have still been waiting? Well, this is why last November we asked for a public plan and a public education mandate so that people knew when to expect their vaccines. Mr. Trudeau had some, about a week before Christmas, you recall, he had some photo-op-driven vaccines, but then we literally had next to none or, or very few in both January and February, Mike. That is why we're having a third wave here, and the United States, UK, and some other countries are not. Um, I'm, I'm glad to show Canadians that, that AstraZeneca is safe, and people can't discriminate uh, towards the type of, of vaccine they want to get. We need to, to deal with the hesitancy out there because we need a level of vaccination so we can reopen and get life back to normal. So we're slower than many other countries, and we're going to pay the price for that um, with a, with this severe third wave and even the risk of a fourth wave because Canada was so slow. Okay, Trudeau has said he has no regrets about the vaccine plan as it's been rolled out in the country. Let me play a short clip for you and get your reaction. Here is the Prime Minister. It was important that we uh, signed deals with a large range of potential vaccine makers because uh, we didn't know which ones would be most effective, which ones would arrive uh, early. Uh, that's why Canadians are well served. Okay, so Trudeau constantly reminds Canadians that they signed lots of different contracts with lots of different companies to get this vaccine, the largest suite of, of vaccines of any country in the world. But you think, like, what would you have done differently if you had been calling the shots? Well, A, I wouldn't have partnered with China. He leaves that out of it, Mike. Yeah. The reason why we're in such a bad position, the reason why they scrambled and bought as many as they as they could afterwards, because we partnered with China. That was a failure of, of historic proportions. And by the time he got serious with all the others, we were behind many, many other countries in the orders. Uh, we see that. The U.S. Is, is 230 million people vaccinated, the U.K., Israel, a whole range of countries. That's why they bought this portfolio. They won't tell people when it's coming. There's more coming in the future, not enough to stop the third wave. That was incompetence on the part of Justin Trudeau. A year ago, Mike, I was saying we needed yeah. domestic capacity for vaccines, and he failed to deliver that. Okay, but other than doing this part, this failed partnership with the CanSino vaccine with China, uh, which I agree with you was obviously fell on its face. Other than that, what else could he have done? Other than like sign the sign the contracts quicker, is that what you're suggesting? They should have signed the deals earlier. Well, no, he had been having a war over the last three years with the pharmaceutical industry, Mike, over patented medicine pricing. In in fact, he had actually driven capacity out of Canada in the last couple of years because he was he was fighting with this sector at a time we, we needed to be partnering with them and need to keep that well, sort of leading bioscience edge that Canada's traditionally always had. Well, we didn't set up vaccine production capacity when the Conservatives were in charge either. 
oh, we've got lots of vaccine production capacity. That's another lie from the Liberal governments. We have that in Ontario, in Quebec. Um, the Abcellera from Vancouver, that important therapeutic product, is sitting on shelves because they haven't deployed it, Mike. So this so, government is slow at every step. They make incompetent decisions, particularly the Can-Sino-China partnership. They don't like talking about that, but we lost yeah. five months with that uh, ridiculous deal. So Mr. Trudeau has to be held to account. The third wave is the Trudeau wave, Mike. Okay, let me just go back quickly to your idea about potentially grounding all international flights. Like for people who are listening to this, uh, uh, maybe they've got they got travel plans themselves. Maybe they're who knows. Maybe they're in the tourism business or something re- relying on international travel. They might shudder to hear this thought of grounding all flights. Period. What would you say to someone who who would say that's pretty extreme? I'd be wondering if that person has been listening for the last six months to everyone saying now is not the time for non-essential travel. Until, Mike, we have the ability to secure that border, meaning every single person, whether land or air, is given a rapid test and there's a process for, for quarantining to make sure we keep these dangerous variants out. That should not be happening. We remember the travel that, that some public officials made at Christmas, and everyone said, including the Prime Minister, now is not the time for non-essential travel. With yeah. these variants, Mike, we can't afford one of these cases getting in. Look at what's happened in British Columbia as a result of, of variant and other outbreaks. Oh. We've got to get this under control. Okay, but when you say possibly ground all international flights, wouldn't that, are you saying that some flights would be allowed to continue for essential travel only, or there would just be no travel, no air travel, period? I've said temporary because Mr. Yeah. Trudeau has not delivered rapid testing at all border entries. This is something he said he would have uh, testing and tracing. Yeah. One of his first press conferences on his doorstep uh, last year, Mike, he promised that Canada would have rapid testing and tracing ability. We don't have that today. That okay. It's a colossal failure. In fact, I, I said this morning, my military time, my private sector time, this level of consistent failure and being two steps behind would never be tolerated anywhere outside of politics. So until we have the ability to administer that rapid test on everyone coming in our country, including this backdoor through land borders, which Mr. Trudeau knows is, yeah. knows is happening, Global News has been reporting on it, as have others, we need to temporarily make sure that we don't have any loopholes in this system. We need rapid tests at all ports of entry. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Always great, Mike. Be well. I, I appreciate it. Same to you. That is Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Federal Conservative Party, leader of the opposition in the House of Commons. Here we go now with BC's new travel restrictions. They kicked in on Friday. The government has basically carved up the province here into three separate districts. You are not allowed to leave your own district for non-essential travel. If you do, you risk getting a $575 fine. But how are they going to enforce this? Well, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth said last week the government looking at police roadblocks and checkpoints. Here's what he had to say about that. Over the coming days, we will continue working with police to establish additional measures to ensure they have the necessary authority to conduct periodic roadside checks like the counterattack program at strategic points into and out of the defined regions. At that time, 
a contravention of this order may be subject to a $575 fine. Okay, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth speaking last week about those police roadblocks that are coming to British Columbia. He's mentioned a few specific locations where these might be set up outside of ferry terminals, Highway 1, the Coquihalla, the Hope Princeton Highway, uh, maybe in other places as well. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee. She's a lawyer with Acumen Law. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Kyla. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. So you're very familiar with roadblocks and stuff because you specialize in this in your law practice, and you heard him compare this new system of checkpoints to the counterattack anti-drunk driving roadblocks that people are familiar with. So that's the one where if you drive up to one of these counterattack roadblocks, they stop everybody, right? They stop everybody, and they're looking for you know certain symptoms of alcohol consumption, red, glassy eyes, an odor of liquor coming from the car or the person. They ask people if you've been drinking and see if somebody volunteers that they've consumed alcohol. So there's, there's specific things that officers are trained to look for in those situations. Right. So if they set up something similar here to enforce these COVID travel restrictions, how is that going to work? Do we know yet? We don't know. Uh, I believe the government said that they're hopefully going to be giving us some information on enforcement today. Um, but it's going to be very difficult for them to enforce it because you can't compel somebody to tell you the reason for their travel, at least not under the order as it's currently drafted. Um, oh. And unless somebody's got, you know, a trailer or skis or, or some evidence that they're obviously taking a recreational trip, there's nothing that you can see about a person that tells you the purpose of their travel. Well... So, but aren't they like? Let's say you drive up to a counter a counterattack roadblock for drunk driving, right? I mean, the the, the thing the police officer always asks you is, "Have you had anything to drink?" So they, they that's the question they ask you. So presumably, in this case, they would ask you a question like, "Is your travel for essential reasons?" Isn't that what they would you, ask? I I imagine that's probably what yeah. they're going to ask. But what happens if you remain silent? You don't answer <laughs> the question. Do they have the authority to say, okay, well, since you haven't told me it is, I'm going to tell you to turn around and, and stop you mm. from traveling? Well, what happens if you refuse to answer the question at a counterattack roadblock? If you refuse to answer the question at a counterattack roadblock and yeah. the officer doesn't quickly form a suspicion that you've got alcohol in your body, you're waved on your way and allowed to proceed. Huh. Okay. But the, I could also, I mean, I wouldn't dare not answer a cop's question at a roadblock, but... I mean, if you got stopped at a counterattack and you refused to answer a question whether you've been drinking, wouldn't the cop just then turn around and give you a breath test? Uh, a lot of them do, but a lot of yeah. them just let you go. Huh. Okay. So in this situation, like you said, we're still waiting to see the details here about how this is going to work, where these are going to be set up. What are you sort of picking up from the police? Because we've already seen some of the police unions notably the union that represents RCMP officers, go public with their opposition to this. What are you picking up on that? A lot of police that I've talked to are concerned about where the manpower is going to come from. They're already stretched to the limit as far as resources because of COVID and the number of officers that have to be taken off duty as a result of displaying any type of symptoms. They don't have additional staff to staff counterattack roadblocks like they do in the holiday season when there's additional funding and when all the members are healthy and out and ready to be able to do that. Everybody's already doing as much overtime as they can already do to fill in the gaps. Okay, but Farnworth also said last week that the government will likely give additional funding to police in order to pay for this, right? So if there's any overtime involved or whatever, there should be a top-up to their budget. 
But you can't fund police officers who just aren't available to do the job. I mean, nobody wants to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. People still need their time off for their mental health and for their physical well-being. And we're seeing officers already. Every time I go talk to officers at traffic court, they're telling me about how exhausted they are because there's so few officers able to take the roads right now. Okay, yeah, police don't seem very enthusiastic about this idea for sure. I'm speaking to defense lawyer Kyle Lee. We're talking about the looming roadblocks and police uh, checkpoints in British Columbia to British Columbia. We're expecting more information on this from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth this week. Do you think it's, what do you think about the government's rollout of this plan? Does it, does it seem unclear to you? It's been incredibly unclear. We had on the first day John Horgan talking about random traffic stops, which got everybody in a tizzy, including me. And then Mike Farnworth walking it back um, and providing a little bit more clarity on Friday last week. And finally, we have the text of the order, which doesn't really give any powers. It just says that you can't travel outside your health authority except for the 19 defined essential reasons. So, I mean, to, to do something so significant while providing so little information and delaying the provision of information is is just unfair to the public. The other thing I'm wondering about is the $575 fine for non-compliance with the health order. I mean, if a police officer stops you at a roadblock and says, is your travel non-essential? And you say, well, I'm going to my cottage or something. And then they say, well, okay, that's that's non-essential travel. Do they write you a ticket at that point? I mean, you haven't done it yet. Right. Like you've been stopped on the way there. So can they give you a ticket for something you haven't done yet? Or I mean, this is an incredibly difficult question, because is it criminalizing the attempt to travel? And if it is, then, you know, are are we getting into the territory of of essentially punishing people for making plans that don't come to fruition? Yeah. Okay. what about the Alberta border? Because this is another one that people have pointed out that at the same time, they're setting up roadblocks within British Columbia to stop motorists from traveling inside the province at the actual border with Alberta. They're not putting up a roadblock there. They're just putting up signs. Why are they doing that? They can't stop people from Alberta from coming into B.C. B.C. can only pass laws. B.C. only has the power constitutionally to pass laws in the province that affect people in the province. So they can't pass laws that affect people from Alberta to say you in that other province can't come into our province. They can only pass laws that affect them once they get into B.C. Okay, do you think these roadblocks will be effective in stopping people? I mean, what's to stop someone if they if they come up to one of these roadblocks, the police officer says, are you traveling for essential reasons? And the driver says, yes. And I don't <laughs> is, that, is that like yeah. just the end of it? And just go, okay, on your way then. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, you have to prove it. There's no obligation in the order to provide documentation or proof of the reason for your travel. If there was, that would be a significant privacy violation that I don't think would be justified. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, using the honor system has been what we've been doing so far, and it yeah. hasn't really worked very well over the last several months. Let's talk about jumping the COVID queue now. How did a West Vancouver country club manage to get their own private vaccine clinic yeah this was the plan at the hollyburn country club in west van they partnered with a pharmacy in new westminster to set up a covid vaccine clinic for their members membership has its privileges clearly here The email that came out from the CEO of the country club, it says, quote, we understand there are long waiting lists for COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah, you think? And then to offer our members a convenient way 
to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, we have organized a pop-up clinic at the Hollyburn Country Club. This was a very short-lived scheme. As soon as the health authority found out about it, they shut it down. The vaccine clinic not going ahead. Lots of fallout from this here now. The mayor of West Vancouver has resigned from the country club. She is very critical of this pop-up vaccine clinic that was planned. Also, the government now saying that this particular pharmacy, Indigo Pharmacy in New West, uh, has also been sanctioned here and will not be allowed to distribute further vaccines. Let's discuss now with my guest, Craig Cameron. He's a city councillor in West Vancouver, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Councillor, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Okay, this is quite a story. It's got everybody talking. What do you think about it? Do you think this reflects poorly on this in this club? And I just wonder if you think maybe this reinforces some uh, some stereotypes, shall we say, about West Van. Yeah, I mean, obviously the optics of this, uh, Mike, are are terrible, and it does it has reinforced some unfair, I think, stereotypes about West Vancouver, and that yeah. that's frustrating because the people I know in this community have really come together um, to take care of the needy, and they, there's 700 meals being prepared for seniors every week uh, through volunteers in the Seniors Activity Center. Um, you know, there's all sorts of examples of people who are going out of their way to do what they can in the pandemic. I, I know several doctors on the front lines in my neighborhood who I see at school and at pickup time, and they've got grooves on their faces from wearing PPE all day, uh, you know, trying to save people's lives. And so it's really unfortunate to, uh, you know, to have that sort of stereotype uh, of the Q jumper uh, yeah. associated with West Van because it doesn't reflect the community that I know. Right. We saw that the mayor of West Vancouver, Mayor Marianne Booth, who was a member of the country club until very recently, she has now canceled her membership there and uh, very critical of this vaccine clinic that was being planned. What do you think of the way she's handled it? Well, you know, I think she was right to uh, condemn the clinic. And in terms of her canceling her membership, I mean, that's her own choice. Um, I, I, I'm not a member of the club, um, but I, I do think the club management has has to do some explaining to the members. I understand there's a uh, a, a move afoot to uh, 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 have the ma- management reviewed um, by some of the members, but yeah. but I also have talked to other club members who who um, you know who didn't don't think this is the biggest deal either. So I'm not sure uh, um, you know how it's going to resolve in the club, and that's their own internal business. Um, but I, I think the mayor did take a strong stand. And I, th- I think often we talk about politicians just uh, talking the talk but not walking the walk. And certainly this is a strong statement um, by the mayor uh, to uh, to act in accordance with her principles. Right. The country club has said that they had partnered in the past with the same pharmacy to provide flu shots for members of the country club without much backlash or uh, with uh, with that, but I mean, this is different with COVID nineteen. Would you say? Yeah, it is very much different. And you know what's different about it, Mike? There's a couple things that are different. One is we're in the middle of a global pandemic and people are dying. Um, two is that vaccines are scarce, and ultimately, there's not enough vaccines to give to everybody who wants them right now. And so we have to make sure that vaccines are allocated in a way that's fair. 
Um, and we want to make sure, first off, that they go to people who are the most needy or the most deserving, who have the biggest health risks um, or in front-facing uh, positions. So that's, that's the issue here is that there are scarce vaccines and the idea of, of getting ahead of the queue really offends, I think, most Canadians. Um, ultimately, I think it's unfortunate because the club missed an opportunity here to do a public service. If they'd made that same clinic open to the public and just said, look, we'll, we'll run a clinic out of the club, but we'll make it open to anyone in the community who wants the uh, vaccine, the AstraZeneca, then I don't think it would have been an issue. And I think they would have, uh, they would have uh, got some positive reviews for it. Yeah, speaking to West Vancouver City Councillor Craig Cameron, you mentioned, Councillor, that you are not a member of this country club like the mayor was, and she has now resigned from the club. But I, I imagine you know people who are members there. I mean, this, is this a pretty popular club there in the city? Yeah, I understand. There's five thousand five thousand members in the club. Wow. Um, I don't I don't know if that's true, but that's it's, I know there's it's a pretty big club. I've got family members and friends who are part of it. Um, and it's basically a uh, a regular, uh, you know, country club. Obviously, it's expensive. Um, yeah. It's, How much does it cost know, to I, join I, there? Pardon me. How much does it cost to join? Oh, I don't. I don't know. I've heard. Well, I heard it was forty. Forty or four, yeah, I, forty I, or fifty thousand. Yeah. yeah. More than more than I more than I have. <laughs> I, I, I go to the I go to the community center, which works just fine for me and my family. But you look, people belong to the club. And you know, I've talked to some of them. None of them had heard of this clinic. Ironically, they only heard of it uh, through the media. Um, so uh, it really and, and everybody I know who is a member of the club has already been vaccinated in uh, in, in at pharmacies around the community or, or otherwise. So um, it, it really was a surprise to everyone that I've talked to. Right. And are people like how are people reacting to it when they find out, like you mentioned, that, you know, some you know family members and friends who are members of this country club when they found out about this thing? And I don't know. what How do they feel about it? Well, I think some are embarrassed. They feel like it's an own goal and it reflects really poorly on the club. Other, yeah. Others think that, uh, you know, I think that it's maybe uh, uh, they, they feel like the context hasn't been brought out. I think the original um, the original idea was to bring the uh, pharmacy in to vaccinate some of the staff at Hollyburn. And Hollyburn's had some issues with outbreaks over the pandemic. I think it yeah. had to close for two weeks uh, by virtue of a public health order in October because they had an outbreak. And so the notion was just like, uh, you know, like, like people are being vaccinated in, in, in community centers or gyms or restaurants to bring in, uh, a, you know, a pharmacy to vaccinate the staff at Hollyburn also. And then, and then I think it expanded to cover the members. So yeah. I, I think, you know, this was not something that anybody um, uh, realized would get the kind of backlash that it did. So, yeah, I, I guess it answered your question. I think, uh, a lot of the members are, all, most of them are surprised. Uh, some of them are, are dismayed and some of them feel like um, maybe it's uh, it's being overblown. Okay. Do you think that, I mean, this club, I wonder what was going through their minds, the management of this club when they decided maybe this was a good idea. They must have, uh, I wonder if they thought, well, maybe no one will find out. It won't come out. Once you send out an email like that saying, hey, we're having our own private members only clinic, I think it's sort of almost bound to get leaked especially when you got 5000 members um, do you think that they do you think they miscalculated the public reaction to something like this oh yeah i actually i i think that my impression of course this is you know just my impression my impression is they didn't they didn't think there would be this kind of backlash 
I think that yeah. the thought was that, well, now we're generally vaccinating the public. Um, I got my vaccine last week because I was walking down near the beach. Uh, I got a coffee and I was walking past the pharmacy and there was a handwritten sign that said, anybody who wants a COVID vaccine, just drop in. So I dropped in wow. and the small pharmacy had 40, uh, 40 uh, vaccines that day and I got the 15th. And I phoned my wife and she came down and got the 17th. And then I went to, back to the coffee shop and got the husband and wife who owned the coffee shop to come down and get vaccinated. Um, you know, so the, I think the notion is that, that the vaccines are generally available and the desire is just to get as many p people vaccinated as possible. Yeah. But I think they didn't appreciate the optics of having a clinic when there are uh, there is a shortage of AstraZeneca. Like everybody can't just get it who wants it. And to offer it privately only to club members, I, I think they didn't they didn't appreciate how that offensive that would seem to people. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Councillor. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Yeah, no no problem. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. That is Craig Cameron there. He's a West Vancouver councillor talking about the Hollyburn Country Club. They're very short lived, a private vaccine clinic. As soon as that became public, the health authority shut it down we have followed very closely here on the show the battle over the police school liaison program in vancouver schools this is a program that puts police officers in vancouver schools to liaise with students and school staff there are currently 15 police officers in this program going into the schools in vancouver and this is a program that's been around for a long time it's been in place since the 1970s but perhaps for not much longer a campaign against this program has been gaining strength people who want the cops out of schools there is a key vote on this program tonight the vancouver school board set to vote on whether to continue the police liaison program in vancouver schools very timely in a tragic way when we just saw the death of a Vancouver high school student after being stabbed in a fight and uh, there was a news conference this morning by the Vancouver Police Department and the issue of the, the school liaison program for kids actually came up. Have a listen to this. This is a VPD spokesperson Steve Addison. Throughout Vancouver uh, they provide uh, a number of services to young people in the schools and um, this ranges from everything from school liaison officers who volunteer their time on weekends to help train uh, teenagers for um, their first 10K in a running club. Our uh, school liaison officers provide valuable guidance and mentorship to young people, everything from helping teens fill out college applications to giving them a pep talk when they've had uh, a rough day to Okay, Steve Addison there from the Vancouver Police Department this morning defending the school liaison program, which is on the table tonight at the Vancouver School Board should the program be cut and uh, Vancouver Police removed from Vancouver schools. Let's discuss this now, and we got some great guests here. First, I want to speak to Ali Chowdhury. He went to high school in East Vancouver, and he supports the continuation of this program. Ali, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thank you for having me today. Okay. So, Ali, where did you go to high school? Yeah, I went to high school in East Vancouver at Templeton Secondary. Okay. And now you're, you're, you're what, you're 22 now, right? 
Yeah, that's right. I just graduated not too long ago, and I continue to go back to help within my community, so I'm still connected with a lot of the students. Okay, tell me about this program, because you had some... Uh, did you have any any uh, any relationships with the police there in this program when you went to high school? Yeah, you know what? Definitely. I was um, I was a troubled teen hanging around with the wrong people in the grade 8, grade 9 um, ages. Um, however, my life has changed around when I ran into some incidents, but I was fortunate enough to have the school liaison officer there who was able to guide me in the right direction and tell me about real-life experiences that he had seen about some of the people that made some decisions that I was going to make. And those are some of the things that are unique that the school liaison officers do. They bring in real stuff from the real world. And um, he was going to show me where I was headed towards. Okay, where do you think you were headed? You know, I went into gang life, and I don't really leave you one way, either in jail or dead. Right. Do you have any of your friends who had gone in that direction? Yeah, you know what? It's unfortunate I did, and um, a few of them were on the run. A few of them ended up in jail, and uh, very few of them did end up changing their life. Um, but I know the few that did have done great things. Okay, Ali, you've uh, you've been speaking out in support of this program. How did this program specifically help you? Like, what did this police officer do to help you when you were you were having some troubles in your life in high school? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think a big thing that they did was be a resource to many other programs that are out there. You know, um, my school is an officer helped me get into the VPD Student Challenge, and that was when I was trying to change my life around. And then from there, I was able to see a whole different perspective on life. And, um, and the school even officer was always there to have a chat with me as well, um, get involved with the community of the school, help run school dances, um, coach some teams, and um, be, be there as a personal mentor, someone that, you know, that doesn't have to go and, and not necessarily not follow the book, but someone that you can talk to without knowing that, you know, other agencies have to get involved. So they're able to be very discreet, which was big for a person like me that didn't want to cause a big scene. Yeah, what do you think would have happened if that police officer was not there to help you and mentor you? What do you think would have happened in your life? Do you think you would have got into gang life? I think so, definitely. And I mean, I've had a situation where I was in school and the school liaison officer wasn't there and I had to approach, you know, it was a situation where, you know, I was receiving death threats and stuff and I had to go see one of the principals. And, you know, because they're just not trained to deal with certain situations, they were flustered and, and they called the school liaison officer to the school. Um, to come back as quick as he could because of that situation and that. And it's moments like those where the school is officer is able to come in and know that he's dealt with situations or she's dealt with situations like this before. Um, and without having to get flustered, they're, they're there to help you. Okay, Ali, you have started a campaign to save this uh, program, a uh, social media campaign going. You've got a lot of other kids on board. Yeah. Why do you feel passionate about preserving this program in Vancouver schools? Well, like I said, I've continued to keep a relationship with a lot of the students in the community. Yeah. And um, they've told me personal stories. I was, I mean, I'll share one with you guys right here. Sure. I was outside I was outside of one of the schools, and I was having a conversation with a lot of the students. And that's one of the key things that I've been doing. I've been trying to hear what the students have to say. Um, and I think that's what some of the other organizations have failed to do. So I was listening to the students, and we were having a great conversation. And we had this other group of students come and talk to us. And um, what they had to say was, you know, F the police, F the program. We can't wait until the school liaison officer is out of here so we can do our, uh, you know, our stuff in peace. And I was able mm. to steer the um, conversation in a way to understand what was it exactly. And I, and I got this story out of it that was so powerful. One of the kids, you know, he was all this shady, had his head on, baggy pants. And, and he said to me, you know what, she, she was actually really nice. 
and he was referring to a schoolie as an officer. She said she, you know, took a baton away from me and she did it without writing me up. So, you know, it still saved him from having a criminal record, which he understood would affect him in the future. Um, but he also said something that she saved me from hurting someone else that day. So she may have potentially wow. hurted someone. She may have saved someone's life. And we saw what happened with the, you know, 15 year old that just was um, stabbed to death. And yeah. imagine a school liaison officer that was there that could have possibly taken away a knife from this 14 year old, how different that situation could have been. Ali, thank you for coming on to give us your perspective on it today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having oh, me. You bet. Ali Chowdhury there. He's a graduate of uh, East uh, High School in East Vancouver, fighting to support the school liaison program to keep the police officers in school. A critical vote on that tonight at the Vancouver School Board. Let's check in quickly with Owen Ebose now. Owen is the founder of Youth Empowerment Canada, and he opposes the program in schools, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Owen, thanks for coming on. Back for more, Mike. What do you think about what it, what you just heard there from a uh, a supporter of the program. Yeah, sure. An officer may have good intentions. And, and as Ali said, many students obviously like their program. But, Mike, officers are complicit in a system that targets members of the BIPOC community. We have data that shows Black people, Indigenous people are pulled over more often and are victims of police violence more often. So when an officer walks into a school, they are representing this broken system. They're bringing trauma into classrooms that are supposed to be safe environments for students. Let me explain what I mean by trauma further. My friend, his father was a victim of police violence. He watched his own dad cry. So when my friend sees a police officer in his school, that image is reignited in his head. He doesn't feel more comfortable. No, he feels anxious. That's what I meant a while back when I was on your show last time when I said that many students view police as the enemy. There's a larger system in play here, and we cannot overlook the students who are saying they feel uncomfortable. Okay, but... One student. We have to take it seriously. But Al Lee, the, the, the fellow I just interviewed, he's a member of the BIPOC community himself. He's a South Asian guy who says that basically this program may have saved his life from going down the wrong path and joining a gang. Well, Mike, so, look, so, again, I just said, like, Ali has very valid experiences, and I'm happy yeah. that he stepped forward and shared his thoughts. And I'm, I'm very happy to hear that he gained benefit from this program. But, Mike, just because one student is saying they, they're feeling like this program is of benefit to them, that doesn't mean that all students are feeling the same way. Well, I, don't think anyone, I don't think anyone's saying all students are feeling that way, but he's making the argument that lots of students are on his side. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's true. So, I, as I said before... Some students feel like the program is beneficial. Some students feel like it isn't. So if we have a, a group of students who don't feel safe in schools, even if there's that benefit there for, for some students, there's obviously a, a need for reform. There's obviously a need for change, which is why, and, and I, I'm planning on working on this, there's a big vote today. I believe in compromise. And as I said, we know that some students don't feel safe. Some students do feel safe. So if we can find a way to make sure that students who don't feel safe in schools are able to walk into that classroom without worrying about having that trauma brought forward again, I think we can find a good compromise here, Mike. What would be the compromise? Well, well, number one, I don't think officers should be on active duty while in schools, and I don't think this program should be forced onto students. Maybe the police can host after-school workshops. Maybe they can come in when students actually have a choice as to whether or not they want to interact with these officers. The other big thing is, 
I feel like it's so important if we truly want to teach kids about the life of crime, and I said this last time, to bring in those with lived experience, to bring in ex-convicts who can actually talk about the journey from, from being at, at rock bottom to gaining your life back. I think that's important to hear that experience. So we can bring more of those people in sure. and give students a choice as to whether or not they actually want to interact with students. I feel like it would be a much safer and healthier environment. Owen, thanks for coming on once again. Thank you, Mike. All right. Owen Ebose there. He's the founder of Youth Empowerment Canada. He's opposed to the school liaison program. He thinks the police officers should be out of the schools in Vancouver. Critical vote on this issue tonight at the Vancouver School Board. Now, we heard both sides of it there. Ali Chowdhury supports the program. He wants it to continue. Owen is opposed to it. He wants the police out of Vancouver schools.